Hello there. Hello there, you and perhaps coronavirus lockdown, wherever you are on the planet. Or my kid who just got told she's actually going to school tomorrow, much to her chagrin. Um, hello, Wolfie. You just woke Oh, he just woke up. He's on my chest. He just woke up. So, um, this is Osha here. This is better than yesterday. Thanks for joining me. Hamish McDonald's on the show today. He's fabulous. And I can't wait for you to hear the conversation. But um, this is a podcast I do every week. And every week, Andy, my audio producer, cuts up and makes it sound great, particularly this week. And uh, Rachel, my audio producer, um, makes sure that me and my guests are in the same place at the same time. I have to, my show producer, I should say, I have to pay both those people. So, you're either going to hear an ad. Or are you going to hear Hamish say something cool? Depending on where you listen and how you listen. And when you listen. Okay. Let's roll the dice. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I remember being in Libya during the sort of revolution and then what turned into a war really in the lead up to Gaddafi being killed and riding along and sitting in the back with some of these young fighters and they were and they obviously had these vehicles souped up with heavy weaponry but they also had huge sound systems and I I remember looking in through the sort of window at the back of the cab and I was sitting on the back trailer one of these young guys with the kind of kafir scarf around his neck was reading the Quran, so sort of reading the verses, and they were all very religious, but then they were absolutely blasting Eminem out of the sound system. And I guess that's another observation I would make is that they're sort of more in common than what we probably would ever like to, to think. That is journalist, broadcaster and the host of Q&A on the ABC, Hamish MacDonald. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Yesterday. 
Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is my podcast. It's a podcast I've been making uh, twice a week since 2013. Uh, this is episode 328 of the show uh, featuring Hamish McDonald. This is a conversation that happens every Monday and Friday. Every Monday I have a conversation with a guest. Every Friday I have a conversation with you. And it's simply a show that hopes to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. I guarantee something you'll hear in the next hour and a bit will make you go, oh yeah, and... Today, when you go to bed, you go, today was good. In fact, it was better than yesterday. That's it. That's all we're here to do. Uh, if you don't know, this is your first episode. Hello, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm currently sitting at my kitchen table with a baby strapped to my chest in a Ergo Baby because he should be waking up any second. He did wake up when I started speaking, but he's gone back to sleep. But it is time for him to eat. We're all out of whack. We're all out of whack with the eating and the sleeping at the moment because the teething. Anyway, it's all happening. So a baby may wake up in the middle of this conversation with you. And yeah, I work on TV. I wrote a book and a family and a bike, two bikes, three bikes, three bikes, four bikes in the house, four bikes in the house. One of them I don't ride. How many bikes? I've only got three bikes at the moment here. Here, it's two bikes and my in-laws. Lots of bikes. Why do I talk to you about bikes? Anyway, uh, thank you so much for all the emails. You can always get in touch with me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Particularly appreciative of the emails and the uh, messages about Friday's episode about being 10 years sober. It was very nice to hear that and hear your support and hear that it might have shifted something for you if that's the first time you've heard someone speak like that about sobriety. I just put it all out there you know 10 years is um a long time and if you haven't listened yet uh, maybe put your ear to it and perhaps if there's someone in your life that could do with hearing a conversation about what it was like what happened and what it's like now i'd appreciate it if you shared that with them because i know that when i was in the spiral of drinking i'd never heard anything like that i'd never heard sobriety like that. i'd since have heard many people speak like that in fact i heard someone speak like that and that's what hit me but there was never any sober messaging that I could relate to when I was drinking. It was only once I started going into those meetings, I was able to hear the kind of thing that snapped me out of it. And all I'm trying to do with that conversation on Friday was just to have the kind of conversation that I might've related to when I was still drinking and using. So it's there if you want to listen to it. Uh, we sure are an interesting time on that planet, aren't we? Isn't this fascinating? Isn't it just fascinating? If you're listening to this in five years, you'll know what happened in the weeks of mid-March, 2020 as the world kind of plunged into the coronavirus pandemic or epidemic and the decisions made by those in business and in government about what we do and what we did next. As of recording this, I think about an hour ago, we now have a two-week self-isolation protocol for anyone arriving into Australia and that's going to change, I reckon, every day. It's, as, as my executive producer, Janine, says, we take a step forward, we look both ways. We take a step forward, we look both ways. We don't just walk straight across the street. That's kind of where we are, and that's fine. It looks like plenty of workplaces are going work from home. And um, this week, certainly, I know a bunch of workplaces that are going work from home. And um, at this point, schools are still open, but I don't know how long that's going to be for. But it's important to remember why we're doing this. We've got to remember why we're doing this. If you're fit, and healthy and relatively young, if you get this virus, you probably get away with a nasty flu at worst, all right? If you fall into a category of someone who's immunosuppressed, diabetic, or an older member of our community, or for example, someone who's in regular contact with someone who falls into that category, then this is a really, really, really big deal. 
So this is a moment in our community as Australians when we are acting for we, not me, okay? Like even at a big hospital, there's probably, I don't know, 10 ICU beds, all right? Even at a really big one, the ones with the ventilators, all right? They can do the work if your lungs stop working. They're probably full anyway with people that need ICU, right? That's intensive care. And we as a community need to help those people who are immunosuppressed or at risk here to help the healthcare workers, help the healthcare system, and ultimately everyone around us by doing the right thing and doing our part to slow this virus down. The trick with this virus is it has an extraordinarily high infection rate. Now, if cases double every day, that can become a very, very big problem. I'm just going to do some doubling. All right, this is not what it happens, but doubling every day looks like this. One, two, four, eight, 32, 64, 128. That's 128 in a week. You double every day from there, you get to 25 million in 23 days. All right, now that's not what's happening, but it is something to keep in mind. This isn't like when you got sent over to your friend's house when she had chicken pox, so you could get it too. Italy went from 200 cases, which is where we are today, to nearly 18,000 cases in 20 days. 18,000 people. That, that's a big deal. That's way more people than there probably are hospital beds. That's a lot of people for a healthcare system to try and absorb. This is really, really, really important. So take it seriously. Don't panic, but don't be complacent. Look after your family. Do the right thing for those that you know. Do the right thing for you. And do the right thing for those of people that you don't know. Because by helping even people you don't know, by helping them, you're helping yourself. Don't rush the supermarket, but don't have nothing in your cupboard. Don't buy more than you need. Other people need food too. Other people need toilet paper. Look after the people in your street. They need you, you need them. If you don't know them, now's a great time to go say hi, from a distance, obviously. Leave your number, let them know if they need anything, all right? It's people in your street that perhaps live alone. They may not have anyone that can help them out all right, uh, or bring them food or stuff like that if, if they need that. And it's important. If you only remember one thing, remember this. Soap and water kills this virus dead, okay? I know alcohol hand rub, the pump pack and the hand sanitizer, it feels really powerful and disinfecty and like it's doing a good medical job. But the reality is that plain old soap, any kind of soap, actually destroys this virus, Okay, so under a microscope, you've probably seen pictures of it. It looks like a, a spiky little globe with bits poking out of it. A virus is essentially, it's, it's a nanoparticle, right? And it's, it's held together by most things, you know, houses held together by bricks and mortar, right? But the, the mortar that holds the, the virus together is essentially, it's, it's called a lipid bilayer. Now, lipids are fats, okay? Soap dissolves fats, if you wash your hands with simple soap, it essentially makes the entire structure of the virus fall apart like a smashed Lego model, all right? It's like pulling the thread on the sweater. The whole thing just falls to pieces simply by washing your hands with soap and water. You need 20 seconds of washing to make sure you get in all the nooks and crannies in your skin. So 20 seconds, sing happy birthday, sing the alphabet song, spell coronavirus twice. That's it. You're safe. Your hands are now safe. 
something, I don't know, for me, when I found that out, something about knowing that just simple soap and water would do the trick made me feel so much safer because I know how to do that. I know how to wash my own hands and I have plenty of soap and any soap will do it. You don't need some super medical mega soap, just any regular soap that will take a greasy pan and turn it to a clean pan. That's enough because it's the fats that hold the virus together that just dissolve and the whole thing just falls to bits. If you do have to go out, do be smart. Keep social distance from people, two metres, metre and a half, whatever it is. Don't shake people's hands. Don't hug, don't kiss. If you have to cough or sneeze, do it deep into your elbow. Don't touch your face. That's the trickiest one, I guess, you know, because my face gets itchy all the time. I'm adjusting my glasses, putting hair out my face, all kinds of stuff. Don't touch your face because that's how stuff in your hands gets into your mucous membranes and then gets into your body. Be aware of surfaces that other people have touched with their hands. That's the thing to be, you know, escalator handrails, trolley handrails, that kind of thing. Just be aware that, okay, I've touched this thing. I'm going to need to wash my hands before I do anything else here. Or I've touched this thing, then I've touched my phone. Okay, I'm going to have to make sure that I, there's mixtures you can make up to clean these things up. But you're going to have to do it, all right? You're just going to have to be a part of it, right? That's fine. We'll figure it out. Just wash your hands. What did I see the other day? Wash your hands like you're washing Jason Momoa. <laughs> Soap and water, 20 seconds. When you come home, wipe your surfaces when you come home. Well, you won't bring it in the house. It's not hard to do. It takes a bit of learning, but it won't be hard to do, but it will save countless lives. Countless lives. Because we are all in this together. And I think that's the thing that kind of makes me feel so calm about this whole situation. This is a truly global emergency. And for the most part, people are bonding together and acting pretty rationally there will be undeniable economic impact but as a community we pretty much we look like we're ready to wear that in the face of the overall health of the community like it's going to suck i'm not going to say it won't suck even audrey and i are thinking well how are we going to make this work we just bought a house what are we going to do but you know we want to make sure we do the right thing and I guess the other part is it's nice to see politicians actually wanting to listen to scientists and act quickly despite real and damaging economic impact in the interests of community safety. But here's the thing, guys, you've shown us that you're happy to do that. So now we've seen you do this. Maybe we want to have that climate change conversation again. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I reckon this will... I have a feeling that the coming weeks and months, I think it'll hit reset on a lot of... I guess expectations, a lot of norms, a lot of ways that we do things around work, play, entertainment, how we feed ourselves, how we run communities, what we expect out of our leaders, what kind of leadership we expect. I reckon we'll come out of this going, yeah, no, that whole kind of bumbling obfuscation shit. No, we're done. We want someone to come on the telly. This is what's happening. This is what we're doing. See you in 12 hours. That's what we want. All right. I don't want to hear, I'm going to the footy. No, I don't know. No, tell me, <laughs> be strong, <laughs> all right? But the good news is, the great news is, uh, we're all here together. We're all in this together, aren't we? I'm here, you're here, Daryl Summers is here, Yumi's here, Shane Jacobson's here, Rove is here, Lizzo is here, the remaining living Doctor Who actors are all here. Audrey's here, your family's here, my family's here. We're all here. We're all going to figure this out. We will. And it's going to be okay. It will. 
And on that note, I want to tell you about my guest because a man like this makes me believe that, yeah, it's probably going to be okay. Hamish McDonald is an Australian journalist, broadcaster, and host of the landmark show Q&A on the ABC, which is on every Monday night. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram. He's at Hamish News. The rise in Hamish's career is nothing short of meteoric. From Wind News in Canberra to Channel 4 in the UK to Al Jazeera, CNN, you name it. Hamish, he has an extraordinary career, an extraordinary history of work as a producer and reporter in some of the trickiest parts of the world to be in. From Afghanistan to Iraq, Libya to Yemen, Hamish's fearlessness when it comes to serving the story in the best way possible is what leads his work. Never one to insert his own narrative into the story, Hamish has brought some of the most grim and gripping sides of humanity to our screens for nearly 20 years. And now he is moderating the national conversation every Monday night on our national broadcaster, the ABC. And we're in a time in our history when actually having a conversation with actual human beings who actually reflect the community has never been more important. Having recently taken over as the host of the Cornerstone ABC show Q&A, Hamish drives the conversation each week around the most pressing issues of our community in a forum that puts regular Australians face-to-face with those in power, allowing them to ask questions directly those who are in charge of policy live around the country where there's nowhere to hide. I've been on q and I went on a couple of weeks ago and I had the chance to see how Hamish operates. I'm here to tell you, Hamish will do that job until he doesn't want to do that job. He is that good. He is a master at his work. It's extraordinary to watch. And you know why? It's because he's humble. He's humble, he's kind, and he seems to only want to bring the humanity of each story to light. Throughout our conversation, you will hear me try to tease some personal side of his emotional response out but he does keep things very close to his chest i guess he reminds me of and i call him this i'll call him he's like daniel day lewis and that his personal life isn't public so that his public life stays about the work there's a there's a moment you'll hear it andy has left it in there's a moment where i fear i crossed the line but i left it in so that you can hear my spluttering apology as i try to make sure that i didn't commit a massive faux pas if Hamish is running the national discourse, we have a pretty good chance of being okay. Oh, Audrey's coming upstairs. She's listening to some music. We've been painting downstairs. What else do you do during a pandemic? You paint. It's brilliant. Uh, just a word here. We do talk about um, Hamish's experience in covering the rise of ISIS in 2014, which I'm sure you remember was particularly barbaric. And you can understand there are some descriptions of some pretty grim and graphic things here. So, if you're not feeling like that today, there's 327 other episodes to choose from. I'm so grateful that a man as busy as Hamish made time to chat with me today. So, come to our new studio in uh, Surrey Hills at the ACAST head offices and have a chat with the delightful Hamish McDonald. I think maybe I'll leave there. You like it? Yeah, I like the headphones. You like the intimacy of the microphone? Do you want some hand sanitizer? Is that time of no, year? No, I've just washed. All right, then. Really right. Is it an overabundance of caution? I'm doing a bit of this. I've pulled out of the... I'm supposed to get out of the F1. Mm. Pulled out of that. We're in heated production, man. Like, I can't... There's, like... like if I can't show up to work, if I have to self-isolate, there's 50 people that can't work. Yes, that's true. So, I don't want to be a dick about it, but I don't want to be, like, stupid. 
You know what I mean? It makes you think a lot more carefully about a lot of things you wouldn't think twice about normally. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, but I wouldn't like to be making really big decisions. When you think about how difficult it is to make the really small decisions in your own life, I wouldn't like to make decisions affecting millions of people. Well, I was talking to my brother about this. My brother and his husband just moved to Detroit. He works for the Ford Motor Company and he's previously worked in Shanghai and he got called up to the main game. He works at the big building with the big blue oval on it. And it's uh, for a country and, you know, you've, you've spent time there. It's shit like this that makes people go, oh, shit, universal health care is really important. You're, you're talking about America yes. now, not Yes. Yeah. I'm supposed to go to America in a couple of weeks. And, uh, yeah, you certainly realise how lucky you are to live in a country like Australia where there's a whole heap of things you just take for granted. Yeah, but that's our social contract, you know. Our social contract is like we pay our taxes and they take care of, you know, law and order. And if we break our leg, it doesn't send us bankrupt, which it did up until like the mid-80s. Yeah. Anyway, the Gladys interview, which you referred to, was interesting. And I, you know, I know you do this all the time and you've done this for a career, but to interview someone who is on the opposite side of an ideological argument on a number of issues and to sit across the table and just try and connect. It was interesting. You find that hard, do you? Because I'm not used to it. I find it difficult to not be persuaded by the pen and teller mind charisma that politicians have. Oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Well, of course you're trying. Oh, yeah, moving on. You know, and I think it was John Doyle, who's Roy Slavin of the Roy and HG. He describes his life before Roy and HG as a, a credit reporter for the ABC interviewing John Howard the day before the Liberal spill that got Howard into the leadership. Yeah. And he goes, every time I tried to box him into a corner, he would vanish into, a, into an amorphous gas and then reappear on another part of the canvas. <laughs> and then, like, he walked away from the interview thinking, amazing, I just did a really good job. And the next day the spill was on and he... Didn't have a clue. Um, so, yeah, I would need a lot more practice, I think, in dealing with people like that. Well, but it's a different it, – it, it is a profession, right? And you, if you're doing it, you know, for sort of journalistic purpose, you do train yourself to, to not think about it through that lens. You know, I don't come to every interview thinking where this person sits in contrast uh, or relation to my own views. You just take them where they're at mm. and interrogate that. And that's a different thing and that requires something different from you as an individual. Yeah. And that's something that for me actually I find comes quite naturally because yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a strongly ideological person and I am not sort of strongly minded politically or anything like that. So it's not that hard for me but I guess it's something that when you work at it over the span of a career, it becomes like second nature. And so every person that you go into interview, particularly when they're politicians, you tend to approach it in a pretty, actually a pretty similar way. Yeah. You know, what are their positions on X, Y and Z and what do I need to understand? What do I need to help the listener or the the viewer understand about this or what needs to be challenged? Where are their gaps in the argument? Does it help for you to understand where they come from to try to figure out why they believe so strongly in this thing. As in where they come from individually. Yeah, because yeah, no matter who they are, they're people that get up in the morning, take a poo, 
use the big flush, wipe their butt, hopefully in a different order than that, um, you know, and then have their reasons and their, their things that formed them so that when a decision comes their way, they immediately go, yes or no, because that's just who they were when they arrived in this office. Yeah, I think it's not always something that forms part of an interview that you do when, when it's a political interview, but it's something that I always want to know is mm. what's their backstory? Yeah. How did they come to this space? You know, most people have a life before politics. Some are sort of political players from the time they finish university or even while they're at university, but the bulk of them have careers or have had experiences that are, that are beyond what's in the public domain. Hmm. And so I make a fair amount of effort to try and have some knowledge of that. I think you can also always get something out of it, particularly where you get politicians stuck on a talking point. You know, it's often really helpful, I find, to know something else about them because you can come at things from a different direction. Uh, and that's certainly something that we've been working on a lot this year. You know, the new show is actually doing a lot more of that background prep with people to understand not just what are their positions on things but how they arrived there. And I'm grateful you do that because we are so awfully stagnant on so many things that require such enormous and immediate action if we just brick wall talking points at each other that we've just heard seven times that day during the news cycle, it's like, well, we are just wasting everybody's time and taxpayers' money by having an hour of television that says exactly the same 20 words you've said six times in front of a camera today. So please, sir, or please, ma'am, <laughs> can we get to this? And I think that's, that's super, super, super important. I, I think the reality is that politicians themselves probably don't really want to be wheeling out talking points as individuals. I don't think that's what they mm. want. I think, I think most people are there because they're engaged with the ideas, mm. wherever they sit on the political spectrum and they're looking to advance them. Yeah. You know, there's something about the structure of the political game that, that exists whereby talking points have come to dominate. But I think if you, if you do the work to understand what it is they're doing and why they're doing it, it is, I think, more possible to encourage them away from the talking points and into an engagement of ideas or a contest of ideas. And I, I, do, I do have the sense that that's what we as a community want more than anything. It's to understand. Mm. We may not say that we want to, but I think most people are pretty reasonable. And if you can understand where someone's coming from, even if you don't agree with the position they arrive at, you might be, you might come away from it a bit less enraged. I would like to talk to you about that part. Most people are pretty reasonable because I feel... Well, I, ho I hope we are. I don't, I I don't have any conclusive I believe, evidence. I believe we are. I would feel... And, you know, it all comes back, comes back to Magda Jabansky, actually. Oh, yeah. When she said 64% of Australia voted yes for the marriage equality vote, she said, that's Australia. That's the majority. That's 64% of people who've gone, you know what? I have enough emotional intelligence to understand that something that's super important for someone else and at the, at the very base of it, something that's super important for someone else that, you know, I can see that, I just, you know, they really want this. Does it affect me too much? No? Great. Take it. Or, you know, people inside that majority go, of course I want this. It's super important that we all get treated as equals. But that there's that majority of people who have been able to consider a, an issue such as that and it's essentially an, an, uh, an issue of empathy and an issue of compassion for someone that isn't you. Great. Go for it. And that gives me extraordinary hope that I can't do maths very well. So that's, that's, that's 20, 36, 18% of people at the 
you know, or 36% of people who are outside of that, I understand they're also members of our community that we have to bring with us. But, you know, the, the, the vast amount of Australians are essentially pretty reasonable and understand, you know, consequence and choice and empathy. It was actually fascinating listening to your Gladys very clean interview because she made some observations about the way the political debate exists and how it often is the loudest voices on the edges that come to dominate the conversation. And so people that don't wholly and purely agree with those positions end up getting shouted down because they, they express something that is, you know, somehow outside of those positions. And I thought that was, that was interesting because often in the media we do end up with the loudest voices and the most effective voices. And I suppose, you know, as a journalist you have a responsibility to reflect the community as it is not just as it's easiest to do. And that's sometimes a challenge because people, you know, some people are afraid to take a position in, in the public domain. You know, if I were in business or if I were a host of television programs or if I were someone that worked in some space helping community groups do something, I probably would be nervous about participating in a public debate because you really expose yourself. I'm sure you experienced that when you came on Q&A. There would have been a lot of people probably that agreed with you, but probably a lot of people that didn't agree with you. Mm. And they probably would have shouted you down. Uh, you know, you're someone that takes strong positions and you can defend them and you do it loudly and proudly. And you've probably been in the media business long enough to know how to handle the blowback of that. But a lot of people, you know, that's not something necessarily that comes easy to them. And so I'm really aware of that. How do we have a public discussion? How do we have really valuable public debates in a way that both tests people on their arguments and holds them accountable where necessary, but also remains respectful and, you know, for the most part, doesn't leave people feeling like they shouldn't have participated in the discussion. And that's something that's difficult to do. You probably noticed when you came on q and I stand up now every week in front of the audience before the show goes on air and I say thank you to the people that have come in to the studio to be there and I say, you know, we can't do a show without a live audience, so thank you and if you like it, please come back. Tell your friends, tell your family, bring a trailer next time. But I also say that the other thing we need is the people on the panel to turn up and we're really grateful to them and during the course of the show you won't agree with everything that you hear and some of it you may react to, you may react positively, you may react negatively, but please be respectful because we're very grateful to them for turning up and for exposing themselves to the public in this way. I don't know how effective that is, but I think it's an important thing to say. I think it's, it's very important that you said it and I texted you this after I, I went on Q&A with you and I, I adored watching you and my first thought as Thanks. I'm watching you do that opening monologue live to air for 15 seconds across a camera move left to right beautiful dolly shot i'm like he'll do this job until he doesn't want to oh thanks you fucking (laughs) own that room so much and what you've done with this because it's democracy only works when there is debate and when elected leaders are held accountable we live in a time where the very reality that we're exposed to through our phones and through our news media which is 
now in Australia more from the internet than it is from television or radio, which is unregulated as far as journalistic integrity and ethics, you know, ethics um, uh, codes of practice that we all adhere to as, as journalists. I call myself a journalist. I'm not, but I guess I am. I don't know. It's gone out the window. So a shared reality is so important for us to make an informed decision. And I'm grateful that you're doing it. <laughs> I think there's something really powerful about putting people of different views and different political persuasions in a room and making them answerable to the public. I think that's a really unique thing. I also think that for all our criticism of Australia's politics, we still have most of the major parties, most of the parties, in fact, willing to turn up and do something like that to subject themselves to that scrutiny, which you know, is no small thing. I spent a year living in America a few years ago doing a journalism fellowship. Who was the boss then? It was Obama, but it was during the uh, 2016 year. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it was That's when the, the year pr- I left. It was the primaries were going on. It was so on. scary. I got the fuck out of there. It was, I found it fascinating. I actually, oh, for you, it would have been, yeah. Yeah, I, and I very early on I actually thought there's something about the Trump story as it's being told that's not right because I was – so I was living in Massachusetts – and studying as part of the fellowship and obviously monitoring the primaries that were going on. But New Hampshire, which is just to the north of Massachusetts, had its primaries and Trump won the Republican primary there by quite a hefty majority. Now, the makeup of the population in New Hampshire is not the story of Trump's rise. You know, these were pretty well-educated, not not you know, there was this sort of picture being painted of the angry white man in the South that was voting for Trump. But he won New Hampshire convincingly in the Republican primaries. So that told me that there was something else going on. There were very smart, very thoughtful, very engaged people that were voting for Trump that were not part of the broader narrative. And back in, in the April of 2016, this is, you know, a fair while before it all actually happened. I made a radio documentary for the ABC called Trump's People about the people that weren't the stereotype that were going to vote for Trump. So it, it seemed to me really early on that the American media was sort of telling a very simple picture of it that uh, maybe belied the reality of it. Um, how did we get to that point? What was I talking about? This is the beauty of podcasting. It doesn't matter, but everyone's along the way with us. <laughs> it's fine. So so I was saying, though, that I lived in America for that year and the journo fellowship that I was on, we would often talk about our home countries and what the media appetite was. And American journalists found it really sort of unbelievable when I told them about the fact that there was a show in Australia that was on Monday nights, it was in prime time on the national broadcaster and it was live and it was politicians and other influential people discussing policy and it was really high rating and or relatively high rating and it really shaped the political conversation and it would nearly always be one of the sort of trending topics on Twitter for that day or that week. They found that unbelievable because that's not how American politics really plays out. You know, there's a lot of deference to people in office. There's a lot of deference to people running for the presidency, so you don't get those really combative interviews. No, they call him Mr President. Hmm. We have always called him Tony. We call him ScoMo. We called her Julia. That's who we are. Hmm. We're like, you're just another person in our community. We, We don't have that level of deference to the office of the Prime Minister that Americans have 
for the office of the presidency. And I think you even saw that during the whole primary season in the lead up to the 2016 election. All of these candidates were not really thoroughly tested during the big set piece interviews that they did. So you got you have a lot of the commentators on the cable news channels shouting and being very aggressive and being hyper critical of them. But when it comes to those those set piece sit down interviews, you don't get that level of interrogation that I think you get in the Australian system and you get in the British system. And I think that's a really big, it's a key difference. And I know not everyone likes it. People do sometimes get upset. You know, me, if I run hard at a politician during an interview, and I, I accept that maybe sometimes you don't always get it exactly right, but I do think it's important that we can really genuinely test them on policy and test them on their positions. It was an, a, a privilege to watch you when I did the episode of Q&A with you. Firstly, it was an extraordinary honour that you asked me. Oh, and thanks for doing it. Also. Mate, I was so honoured that you asked and it was an extraordinary challenge to prepare for because as someone who has quite publicly talked about it, as I talked about on the show, had my brain invent all kinds of wacky shit around climate stuff and having episodes of um, what was diagnosed as paranoid delusions. I wanted to be so careful that I didn't come across as crazy <laughs> or panicked. So I had some conversations with people and what blew my mind was the kind of people that came out of the woodwork, man. Like I won't say names, but people who I'm like, holy fuck, how did you get my number? Right. Hey, mate, we heard you're um, going on Q&A. We'd really love to get you on a conference call with this person or that person. I was like, yeah, right. Okay. That happens, does it? It does. Right. It did. <laughs> but these were people, nonpartisan people. Yeah, right. Nonpartisan people who were just going, here's a fact. Here, these are facts. These are facts. So I talk with people like physicists and economists and, and things like this. I would get off these phone calls. I think I, I don't know, I think every day leading up to it, I had, you know, at least one or two of these calls because I wanted to make sure I, I came armed. Yeah, right. And everything that I managed to get into a metaphor that ended up being quoted was based in just solid bedrock concrete fact. But then I would sit away and go, how do I say all that shit about coal really quickly? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there it is. And I you know, workshopped it with Audrey and the, which, the dishes line is one I came up with Audrey. We're like, how am I going to talk about this Kyoto thing? And we stalked about it. Anyway, so it was so fucking scary to do that, but I knew I had to. And it was like... Uh, you know, going to a gym and, and, and lifting a weight that's so heavy, you go, oh, my God, and you put it down and you're sore for a day and you, you regret you can't walk upstairs. Your brain so hurt. It, it was painful and I wept. I cried. I held our son. I held Audrey. You know, when you really stare into the face of the climate emergency, it is so overwhelmingly horrible. But I was able to come and, you know, come and show up and do it. And I just wanted to tell you that because it was, you know, and I told you on the, on, on the night, I told you to your face, but I just, and I told my psychiatrist yesterday, there was a time, it was around that time, it was around when Trump announced his candidacy. I left in October 2015 when Trump announced his candidacy and it looked like Trump was going to get the nomination. It looked like Hillary was, I didn't want to be in a country where she won. I didn't want to be a country where, either way, you know, it was like, this isn't going to be good. And another person who wasn't white, Usually a teenager was getting killed on the street every week somewhere in America by the cops and nothing was happening. I'm like, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done. I'm done. So I left. But it was an honour watching you take three runs at the woman who was the head of the um, Business Council of Australia. 
and she kept kind of batting away to the slips and batting away to the slips and batting away to the slips and you just kept coming around in a different way and a different way and a different way and a different way and I know what it's like to be on live television and I know that every time you take another run at a question, you are sacrificing another question that you can't ask at the end of the show. You are going, I only get so much budget to pick the moment that I am going to go, hang on, no, we really need the answer to this one. And it might be at the expense of getting a longer, more empathic answer to something. Because live television waits for no one. You've got to be out to the frame. That's it. And you in that seat, in that chair, I'm sure you had people shouting in your ear, move on, move on, move on, move on. <laughs> and you're going, no, I've got to get this. And it was a pleasure to watch you do it because it's worth it, I think, as a community. You said earlier it's easy to tell a story about the edges. It is. A vegan can say, all meat is murder. And in four words, you're like, I can tell a story about that person. That's super easy for the general public to understand. But, you know, then you get someone who's like, you know, I don't go to church anymore and, you know, I maybe left church and, you know, I vote this way, I feel this way, but they want to open a Muslim school in my neighbourhood and I feel kind of weird about it. That's a really hard thing to talk about in four words. <laughs> You know, which is why I'm, I'm grateful that you do this. this is really long way of saying this. I'm really grateful that you do the show and you take the effort to do the show because I think nuance is the only way we're going to get through the next 20 years. It uh, has to be nuance. Well, I get asked a lot about being having been a foreign correspondent and doing all the sort of travel around the world and being in hotspots and all of that kind of thing. And I think it's always hard to put all of that together and have one takeout. But I think. The one thing I have learned from all of the things that I've done is that generally the story is never on the edges. It's never simple. It's nearly always in the grey areas and the nuance. And I think, you know, there's a lot of journalists that I look up to and think are amazing. The ones that I think do it best are the ones that can articulate the grey and the nuance in a really digestible fashion. There's a guy, Jeremy Bowen, who's the BBC's Middle East editor, he explains some of the most complex stories in the world, but he does it so beautifully and so simply. There's a guy, Chris Reason, who works for Channel 7 here in Australia. He tells all sorts of different stories about the world, about Australia, about child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, really complex, detailed stories, but he does it so simply. Uh, when you watch it, it takes no effort to digest it or to understand it. So I think... For me, yes, it is about the nuance, but it's also about how do you make it accessible. And I think I'm, I'm from a generation where, you know, we consume media a lot differently now. I think we are sort of probably digital natives. You know, I come from a weird background of having done news and done international news, but then also have worked on something like The Project. And I think particularly the experience of being at something like The Project brings a different sensibility to really complex things. I think working with comedians, for example, teaches you something very different about communication and about engaging with the audience and about understanding. You know, comedians are generally, whatever their persona is, they're generally incredibly smart, incredibly well-researched, educated people. And on top of that, they understand the value of heart and emotion and they understand, they think all the time about their audience because they're trying to make their audience laugh because they're desperate for their audience to laugh at them. And not that I go out trying to make an audience laugh, 
But I think working alongside comedians has made me far more acutely focused on where is the audience at here? What, what do they want to know? What are they going to connect with here? What, do they, what are they feeling? Emotions are not the only thing. I'm in the news game, but I do think human connection to story is at the heart of everything I try and do. And I think I've been guilty of it in the past with news. You, you sometimes try and tell these stories in a way that's void of that or you don't really think about that in the telling. And so I think that's been a huge learning as well. All that stuff takes work. And the, the journalists that you've just mentioned, they would have also done hours and hours and hours and in, in a, a career of digesting every single piece of nuance of information about this particular thing they're trying to get across in a 30-second satellite shot. Yeah. But if you have all of that information and you have retained it for a while, you can actually see it pretty clearly. Yeah. You know, it, it, there are times when, you know, we've all gone through this where you're sort of cramming for an exam and there's just so much information and, you know, you do it the night before and it, it's sort of there for a brief moment and you're just desperate to hang on to it long enough that you can actually get the exam complete. Uh, but I think if you, if you learn this stuff over time or you have these experiences over time, they still sit within your mind in a different way and you can draw on them at mm. the right moment as and when you need them to be able to synthesise something that's very complex. Do you think that we are coming into a time now in our democratic developed world where we can no longer just kind of watch the news and expect to figure out what's going on, that we kind of have to take our vote a little more seriously and we kind of have to put the effort in and take the responsibility? Because for a long time in Australia, we've... You know, we've got away with, ah, look, you know, everything's amazing. There's plenty of money. The economy's killing. There's nothing but water and food and space and land and peace. I don't give a shit. I will think about it as I read a pamphlet from when I walk from the entrance of the primary school to the booth. Look, I, I have really, I suppose I have mixed feelings about that because in a way that's sort of the, the unique thing about Australia. Yes, we have compulsory voting, but... We don't obsess about our politics. You know, most of us want a good life and we want to be around our family and our friends and to make the most of the incredible place that, that we live in. And, you know, there are countries where politics dominates absolutely everything and really sort of existential challenges, you know, threaten the lives that people can lead. You know, there are people that having a really tough time in Australia, that's for sure. But I think for probably the vast majority of the country, they don't necessarily want to be thinking about politics 24-7. Is that the same thing as, as greater engagement? I don't know. I mean, I sense that probably Australians are more engaged with the big decisions and the big choices in front of us than what we're given credit for. I think the Australian audience, I think Australian voters by and large are, are far more intelligent and informed than, than what the kind of reputation is and what sometimes the media can assume. You know, I've never been one to subscribe to the idea that people don't want to know or they don't care so don't bother telling them. I've always argued for, no, let's give them the context or let's give them that complicated detail. I think for me one of the hardest things working for, I've worked for an American broadcaster for a few years 
one of the hardest things for me working there was the idea that the audience didn't want the detail. I was in Iraq covering the rise of ISIS in 2014, yeah. something like that. Yeah, it would have been 2014, yeah, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it was in Baghdad for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and doing trips out with the Iraqi military and writing these scripts that would just sort of come back from New York with, oh, no, don't talk about Sunni and Shia. Let's just focus on the fight against the bad guy, as they would describe it, which was ISIS. You know, there, there was this sort of desire to just keep the story so simple, the American forces and the coalition against the bad guy. But, you know, to understand what's happening, what was happening in Iraq, what is still happening in Iraq, you need to understand the sectarian divide. You need to understand the, the shift of the power balance from during Saddam's time to the post-Saddam era, the role that America has played in, in shifting that power balance. It's all really central to understanding why ISIS was, be, was able to push the Iraqi army out of Mosul so easily the Americans having trained the Iraqi army and funded it, you know, for a decade or so. And, uh, you know, there was this sort of description of the Iraqi army falling away under the, the sort of arriving ISIS forces. But to actually understand that, you need to understand the sectarian makeup of Mosul, you need to understand the sectarian makeup of the Iraqi army as it now stands, you need to understand the sectarian makeup of the government of Iraq and how those loyalties might bend in moments of difficulty. And from my point of view, I didn't really see the point in being there. You know, it's, it's not easy being in those places and you're away from family and partners and home life and for long periods of time and it, it can be challenging. And I think unless you're really going to explain the story, for me there was, there was less point in, in being there, no matter what your access was because you're an American network. Yeah. We might have had great pictures. You know, they might have had their correspondent in the middle of things, which is sort of what they, they wanted. But I found it a very demoralising experience. I can't imagine. Let me, let me ask you, you know, I know and we all know what it was like when that news first started to break six years ago, seven years ago, and suddenly we're seeing we accidentally click on something and suddenly we're seeing, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible executions. Mm. Like, I did not want to see this because I'd had my coffee. Oh, my gosh. And then we're trying to avoid th this barbaric butchery. And for the most part, then news people start to go, warning, this is this, this is that. You have no choice. You've got to watch it all. How do the f how the fuck do you cope? How do you go to bed at night? How do you sleep? Uh, to be honest, I don't really watch it all. Yeah, I just, I don't. Yeah, that's that's the truth of it. You know enough to go, okay, so this happened in this village and there's video of it, okay. Um, I mean, you know, there are times when there might be a specific thing that you, you need to look at. But I suppose in a circumstance like that, there's a, the, for me it's always about purpose or, or what's the reason. You know, I'm quite prepared to go to Syria or to Iraq or to Yemen or wherever it is if there's a really good reason, you know, if we know that there's a story that we're looking for and it's very important that that's told, then I can justify that to myself and I can justify that to my family. And But I, I'm not a sort of journalist that just wants to go there because I think I want to be there and I want the 
adrenaline charge or, or whatever of, of going into one of those places. Or I've talked to some of those guys. They don't fare very well on the other side of it. Uh, look, there's lots of different kinds of journalists and, yeah. and lots of different people have different reasons for going into those places and being in them. And, and for, you know, I'm, I'm probably, I think it's probably fair to say I'm a, I'm a fairly sensitive soul and I really, I really care about doing the journalism and telling the stories. I wouldn't say necessarily that I'm, I'm there because I want to be. There's sort of a, like, I guess I really believe in the public service side of it is probably the simplest way of putting it. It's kind of a bit boring. So unless I can see what the delivery is for an audience, have I got something that I can go there to do that will make a difference or that the audience will connect with or is important for them to know? That's kind of the metric for me. And so when it comes to videos and that kind of content that come out of these places, you know, you have a pretty clear sense once you click on it. You know, during the, during the height of the bombing in places like Aleppo. I was on a lot of WhatsApp groups with doctors and various people that had stayed behind in Aleppo. And there's a lot of stuff coming through, you know, overnight. I would wake up in the mornings and they'd send these, you know, pretty gruesome videos through. And, you know, I think you have to just be judicious with it. And you get a fair sense of what something is or where it's going. And you also think, okay, hang on, what am I, what do I need this for? Who, who, who do I need to give this to? Where does this need to get to? Um, have other journalists got it as well? Are they on that? Are they doing something with it? Are they better placed to do something with it? You know, my colleague Sophie McNeil was telling a lot of those stories and I think getting a lot of that material and maybe maybe that's a sort of weaker option from my point of view, but I, I just try and be tread very carefully, I suppose is the best way of putting it. But that, I think there's a, that's an important the self-care aspect is you could be the journalist that is trying to tell this story in the most graphic, dramatic way possible, but at what cost? You know, how long will you be able to do the job? How, what are you going to be like when you come home? Because, there's, you know, you're putting yourself in, and I'm only saying this because I've spoken to a few people who have done that job. They put their family at risk. They put their mental health at risk and the rest, they just come back. They don't ever swap out. They're like people in the military have extraordinary support. They're only, only there for a number of weeks and they go away. Mm. They're not exposed to it. These people are there for months, nine, 10, 11, 18 months in a row. They never leave that level of trauma every day. That takes a toll on your life. Yeah, I think so. Some years ago, it was 2010, I lived in, uh, I lived in Yemen for a little while and was studying language there for a bit and it was just after I'd left Al Jazeera. I was about to move back to Australia to work on the George Negus program when that was launching and there was not many Westerners living in Sanaa studying at that time. There was probably maybe a dozen all up. So we kind of got to know each other pretty well and, you know, we would do trips together on the weekends to, you know, all the different ends of the country and it was a really incredible time and an amazing Experience and it was actually only a matter of months after I left that things started to fall apart in Yemen, and it's it's been deteriorating even further ever since. So I, you know, I feel really lucky to have had that experience. But one of the foreign students that I, I guess, befriended at that time, you know, we used to go and have dinners together and talk a lot. Was this American guy? He he was kind of a freelance journalist, but. Really different kind of journalist to me. You know, he's one of these guys that just wanted to kind of was really into the experience of these places and and really wanted to kind of live it. And so Stephen and I kept in touch because during the Arab Spring, 
we often found ourselves in the same countries and you, you would always try and keep in touch with other journos that you knew for information and just sort of safety guidance and particularly during Egypt and during Libya, you know, things moved very fast and, and it was useful to exchange information with people that were in other places because you, you might get a message saying, you know, if you're trying to travel today from Razlanuf to Benghazi or Misrata, there are soldiers here or there are um, Libyan mercenary soldiers here or if you're staying on this side of Tahrir Square in Cairo, it's not safe at the moment, try not to go that way on foot. So we just kept in touch a little bit every now and then during the Arab Spring and it wasn't sort of something I was conscious of but I didn't hear from Stephen for a while and then suddenly he appeared in the news in an orange jumpsuit in Syria um, and had his head cut off by ISIS. Um, his name's Stephen Solov. And, um, you know, it wasn't like we were best mates or anything like that, but, you know, he was someone that, that I was friends with and, you know, I was in touch with his parents a bit after that and clearly just found it, you know, obviously sad and you have all the usual uh, human emotions, but it just ma- made me feel really differently about going there, made me feel really differently about ever clicking on a video. I think because in part... You know, part of the purpose of those things is to dehumanise, right? That's the sort of evil tactic of ISIS is to really dehumanise, you know, throw someone off the top of a building. You know, they don't show the face. They don't, you know, they just literally throw them off. And it, it, so it becomes like this kind of macabre viewing gallery. I think when you see someone that you know in that situation... I don't think you can then ever move past the fact that, that these, are, these, are, these are real humans in these films and I don't think you can ever sort of view them the same way and I don't think you can ever just sort of casually browse something because you sort of may need to for work. I think it just, I think it just makes you really recoil and in a way I think it makes you think about these things in the way probably we all should, which is that it's, it's disgusting and it's, it's really the worst of humanity and we shouldn't honour those who do it with a click, basically. <sighs> Mate, I'm, I'm so sorry that you went through that. But, of course, if you're in that game and they are deliberately targeting journalists the chances that one of those people is going to be someone you know is pretty high. Oh, look, you know, I think that's the reality of, of the world that we live in and a lot of my friends have had far worse experiences and, you know, lost people much closer to them. And, you know, yes, it's about them being journalists, but, I, but I've got to say it's not really... When, you know, when I think about Stephen, that's sort of not really the terms in which I think about it. I mean, yes, he, he was a journalist, but I just, I just really think about it on a very human level. Mm. Is that the challenge of us as consumers of news? Because it's so... Audrey sent me this thing the other day and it was pretty, very clever. I was speaking with um, the bloke on Instagram, Struthless69, I love him, and I said, mate, people like you are the reason that we'll get out of this mess because people who make memes have the ability to communicate an extraordinarily powerful idea, particularly a visual meme that involves a picture, an extraordinarily powerful idea in a second and a half, you know? And she sent me this little meme of like... If you've currently got a cupboard 
that has 98 rolls of toilet paper, 28 packs of pasta and a month's worth of Panadol, you know, don't ever talk to me about refugees again. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That's right. <laughs> I haven't hoarded. I should make that clear. No, no, but, you know, but it, as consumers of media, because it's just this never-ending, cascading waterfall of things that just go past in our phones, algorithmically designed, boring thing, boring thing, boring thing, exciting thing, boring thing, exciting mm. thing, because we, uh, we react to variable rewards and every one of those apps knows how long we spend on each picture or article. Every one of these apps knows when we scroll up. Every one of these apps keeps a track of what we've clicked on. So it just gives us thing we're not interested, thing we're not interested. You're going to love this. Boring, boring, boring. Yes. I feel that we need to be more responsible as consumers. You know, we, you wouldn't eat drive-through junk food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We've all know, if you haven't seen mm. Super Size Me, you remember what it was. You remember what it did to Morgan's body, right? You wouldn't eat junk food every single day and expect your body to not then have a horrible, horrible health crisis. Mm. Why would you do the same with your brain? Why would you do the same with putting this just kind of junk, this fast food, this high fructose content, deep fried things that are scientifically designed by, by taste scientists, food technologists to make every single one of your taste receptors and dopamine receptors to just fire the moment you put it in your mouth. It's terrible for you. Mm. If you have it once a year, ripper, but if that's all you eat, your heart's going to fall out of your body. You know. Yeah. Similarly with your news, similarly with what we consume on the internet. I think it's up to us to go, shit, we're going to have to take responsibility here because our mental health is going to suffer. Okay. You're probably really right. You know, listening to that, I, I feel terrible about how much I look at Twitter. But, but I also think, you know, clearly human behaviour is shifting in terms of the way we consume information and yeah. news. And, you know, I, I do wonder whether sometimes we as the media have been too, too eager to sort of feed that beast. Sometimes it is, it is popular for some news and media executives to get stuck into the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world about the revenue share. And I think that's really valid because I think by and large, well, we know that the media business model, the traditional media business model is being killed by the platforms. Who We're say doing that, it right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but who say they're not publishers and don't have the same responsibility mm. but want the, the lion's share of the revenue. And I think that's valid, but I also think, well, you know, what, what is the business model of Facebook and Twitter if it doesn't have the actual original content of all of these news organisations? I mean, what is, the, what is the business model? So maybe there will be some kind of levelling out. I don't know. I do hope that these platforms become more responsible in their public accountability we can be as critical as we like of, of politicians for their answers to things or the way they don't answer things. But when was the last time you, t you saw a Facebook boss turn up and answer questions publicly? Never, ever. Oh, look, I mean, there are, there are occasionally I, I watched Zuckerberg's thing in front of Congress, which was farcically hilarious. I had to laugh at it. But, you know, can you think of any other institutions or businesses that wield as much power as the tech platforms that are not really held accountable. No. Um, no. And it's not to say that they need to be hauled over the coals necessarily. You know, there are lots of things that maybe should be asked of them. But it, 
I do think in democracies, we should be holding all of those with power to account. And yes, the politicians are a big part of that, but so is business, so is the tech world. They have enormous influence over our lives. And, you know, I I would love to be able to ask them questions. I can't agree with you more. I've I've spoken about it on this show before, and we saw it horribly when Facebook Live first launched very, very quickly a couple of weeks after a, a guy just got out of his car on Facebook Live and just murdered a stranger. You and I work in an industry where it's mandated by law that if you're live, there's a delay, all right? Because we as a community decided, you know, it's probably not good that we'll just roll these cameras and to potentially millions of people broadcast something that could be incredibly dangerous, damaging, hurtful to the community. I don't see a difference. YouTube the same, you know, and the amount of atrocities that have been live streamed now, I think it's about time we had that chat. (laughs) But but it's sort of, I mean, in a sense, it's not unique to media, but the business model of disruption is to get out and ahead of where the existing frameworks are. Mm -hmm. And that's true of every sector, really. Uh, You see it in the transportation sector with taxis, et cetera. You see it in the food delivery business. You see it in banking. The sex trade is falling apart because of Tinder. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was just having this conversation the other day with a lady who's a friend of mine that used to run a brothel. And she's going, barely keep the doors open because now these people can find each other Uh, without me in the middle. (laughs) Okay, then. I did not know that. (laughs) It's true. But- Part of the approach is to to get ahead of where the frameworks are, uh, where the legislation is, where the regulation sits, and disrupt the business model in order to create opportunity for themselves. And often that's that's a good thing because the existing market may not be servicing a demand and mm. uh, may have become sort of deficient in some way, thus open to the threat of disruption. But the reality is that governments do need to then catch up to that. And it's often really hard to do. And it often happens too late. It often happens when the market that's being disrupted is so thoroughly destroyed that there's not really actually anything there left to rescue. Particularly if that government just won a very convincing election using the tools that that platform (laughs) gave them. Look, that, that, that's possibly true, but, I, you know, I wouldn't isolate it to Australia by any sense, by any stretch, if, that, if that's sort of what you're thinking about. Because I, I think the reality is that, you know, all, all democracies rely on a free press and rely on open public discourse. And, you know, I heard there was a great description I heard not that long ago about the impact of disruption on the media at large and it was described as a, as, a, as a mass pollution of the public information streams. And I think that's really true. I think that is happening. And I think it's in all of our interests that, that we clean that up. And it's a huge challenge. I, I, and journalists are not innocent or free of responsibility in any of this. There's a whole lot of responsibility that has to be taken very broadly. But, you know, the contestability of facts is a problem. We all know that. The contestability of truth is difficult. But I think we all also acknowledge that trust is vital to have a high-functioning society. I'm grateful that that's where you stand. Because I definitely see that as a, as a running theme in the episodes of Q&A that you've been a part of, of creating so far. And it's, a, it's, it's quite a nice 
departure from the previous format of the show and it's it's so important. I missed our national broadcaster so much when I lived in America. They've got PBS but it has no doesn't have the sway at all mm. of the um, what the ABC does here. Yet because the ABC is what it is, it's constantly under extraordinary scrutiny and it is unique in this country in the role that it plays, but it's also no one likes to be told that they're not doing a great job and you know, always, you're always going to attack. You're always going to want to attack the person that try, or delegitimize the person that tells you you're not doing a great job. And the ABC so often uh, is accused of being lefty. When you're in the middle of it, you know, as someone who's worked for someone like CNN, someone who's worked for someone like Al Jazeera, someone who's worked for Channel 7, you know, where do you see the ABC? Yeah, I've worked all over the world for private and public broadcasters. I've worked for a Murdoch. I think we all have by this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first thing I would say is that my journalism has not changed anywhere that I've worked. And I know that people tend to get pretty conspiratorial about the way the media works and the influence of proprietors or bosses on the journalism that gets Are you done. you saying Secession is not a documentary? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, though, you know, I've never really come up against any sort of serious attempts to influence what I do anywhere that I've worked, whether it be for a British broadcaster, an American broadcaster owned by Disney, a broadcaster owned by Murdoch, the Cattery government, which is the ultimate owner of Al Jazeera, or the ABC. What I would say about the ABC is that I've never worked anywhere that is as diligent about ensuring that they report fairly and evenly and provide accurate, balanced coverage of everything that they do. They work tirelessly at that. And I do think at the forefront of everything we think about is our obligations as a taxpayer-funded broadcaster and servicing the Australian community. And, you know, my first sort of full-time gig with the ABC was at the start of this year, just as my contract started. I've joined to host Q&A, but my, my title is, you know, senior presenter with the network. And the first thing I did was, was break away from my Christmas, from my summer holiday on the South Coast to anchor the rolling coverage of the bushfires. And I was one of literally hundreds and hundreds of people working for the ABC that did that across the country. People there genuinely believe that they are there to service the Australian public and will drop everything to make that happen and will do it as accurately as is humanly possible. And, of course, you know, we should be open to all feedback and all criticism and, believe me, it comes, it comes thick and fast. But every time I set out to make a program, I want to abide by those obligations and I want to service you know, the broad Australian public. Like most people, I come from a family with a really diverse range of people in it and a diverse range of views, and I hear that feedback about the ABC even from within my family. So I know the job is that we've got to talk to as many Australians as possible. And, you know, that's about reflecting as many voices as possible, about reflecting as many regions and uh, workplaces as possible, and I think, you know, something that's helpful is to make sure that the conversation is always grounded in, in real lived experience. And in part that's, you know, that's informed our sort of plans with, 
with Q and A to use uh, to to make more of the audience that's there. We get three hundred people turn up every single week asking questions, and they all come with their own story about why they're there and why they're asking that question. And I think when when we tease a bit more of that out, it means that the conversations that we have are, are more real. It's less about sort of political slanging matches and ideology and more about, okay, you know, people face genuine challenges in their lives and people with authority and power have some responsibility to answer them. I hope everyone can see when they turn on that there's always a range of perspectives, there's always a range of views. The point of it is that there'll be views that are different from your own and hopefully those conversations will lead to greater understanding. You know, I don't think the outcome is that any one person or any one community should be sort of silenced by the end of it. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Someone's taking a photo. Oh, that's my manager and executive producer, Rachel Barrett. Right. Hello. She's extraordinary. She makes. She's the executive producer of the show. Hello, Rachel Barrett. She was just contenting. <laughs> always contenting. Or as Tanya Hennessy says, ABC, always be contenting. Oh, that's a good, that's a good slogan. <laughs> yeah, she's um, pretty good. I, I, so, I guess, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, we should always face up to the criticism, mm. um, and we do. And we take it really seriously. You know, when people find my email address and email me about something, I write back and I take it on board. Yeah. And sometimes it's pretty mean and sometimes it's unfair, sometimes it is fair. Yeah. And I think it's really important to to acknowledge that. My dad emails me after every show with his feedback and it's, you know, it's not always high praise. And as the taxpayer, Australians have the right to have those views and to, to give that feedback and I take that pretty seriously. Uh, you know, I want a show that as many Australians as possible can watch and can engage with and get something out of. And, you know, some people have said to me, look, I feel like some program or some person on a program has has, has laughed at me or has sneered at me in the past and maybe that has happened but I, you know, I don't want to be sneering. I don't want my shows to be sneering at Australians, I want to be having a conversation that we can all take part in. I get that when I watch that for every person that gets up and asks a question, there's probably 10,000 versions of that person in the community, you know, and that's super important for us to remember. And, you know, to make a show for all, as many people as possible means that, I won't say the name of the show, but you're not just making a, a story for reactionary people who are white and have franking credits and are over the age of 55. 
you're not making a show for those people because those people are very, you know, and, and stoking the f- flames of fear, you know, because those people were, were very loud and they will amplify your show and then more people will watch tomorrow. I think what I hope is that I think the opportunity that that is there is to have a, a space where we can all actually come together and have a conversation every week. I think no matter where you sit on the political spectrum, where you sit demographically, where you physically are in the country, I think we all know that in these very complicated and rancorous times, we need to talk. We need to have conversations that we're all a part of. And so for me, that's the opportunity of this show, that all of us can know that this is a place where we can come to talk about a topic every week. Because I think that that for me, that's the stuff that really drove, I mean, I'm just my armchair view of things. That's the stuff that really drove Brexit. That's the stuff that really drove Trump. That's the stuff that drives a lot of the the right in this. this, You're not fucking listening. You're calling me an idiot. Fuck you. But but I think think that exists on... On the on the fringes, yeah. uh, on uh, both ends of the political spectrum. So yeah. I don't really view it as being about, you know, this is what led to X or this is what led to Y. I just see the world as this very rancorous, angry place, or, or, the, or it can be at the moment. Uh, I should clarify, and that we live in a country where we do have spaces for a broader public discourse, and. That should should be something that contributes positively. So I I step away from you know I, I get where you I, I can hear where you're coming from on it, but I sort of step away from the left and right binary mm. and say we're an Australian community. This is the national broadcaster. This is a program that is live every week that should reflect somehow. It won't always wholly reflect a cross section, but will will reflect a range of views. And this is a place where we can all come together and, and try and advance a conversation on something that's complex or challenging for us. And that sometimes will mean having a robust discussion, uh, but it, it won't always. Sometimes it will mean listening more to the people in the audience than the people on the panel. But I really hope that each week it will, it will lead us all somewhere. It will advance, you know, probably won't solve, solve the challenge, but I hope that the conversation will move on from where it was before. And, and for me, I think that's the best we can do is to understand that as a country, there is so much blue sky ahead of us. We're not anywhere near the top of the mountain. We're, we're maybe, we're a base camp. We're living large, but there's so far to go. And we, yeah. we could do so much more with what we've got for so many more. I, I think a really big distinction or a big contrast for me living at home in Australia now compared with when I was working in the UK is that I think, broadly speaking, Australians believe and know inherently that our best days as a country are ahead of us. I don't think that's true of all countries and all populations in the world. And it may not be something that they sort of state overtly, but if you you live and work and report in Britain for a long period of time you come to see that there's this sort of overriding sense that, you know, the empire is gone, that the sort of the glory days are behind and there's this kind of searching for what the next chapter will be. What the ne- And in a sense, I think the Brexit victory for those that campaigned for it was actually built around that idea, a projection of a better future, 
that was more British and was, you know, there was lots of negativity around it. I, I, I give you that. But actually, if you looked at the messaging mm. of like take back control, which was, you know, this kind of key theme. And, you know, Boris Johnson sort of repeatedly saying global Britain's best days are ahead of it. You know, it was really rooted, I think, in this idea that for some time the best days were in the past and that this was somehow, and, you know, we can have a whole debate about how it came to be and the campaigning against migrants and refugees and uh, the sort of intertwining of negative messaging and um, scaremongering as well. But there was also this component to it, which I think is, I would observe, is less discussed in yeah. in the broader understanding of how and why that happened. I, I guess you are a unique in people I've had on this show that you have seen and talked to and lived in and lived among more cultures than anybody I've ever spoken with. What, if any, you could possibly put on? What commonality do you find in Yemen, in Iraq, in Massachusetts, in Sydney, in Canberra, in the south coast of New South Wales that's on fire? What commonality do you find in, in people it's a really hard question, Osha. We all have motivations. We all yeah. have things that drive our base. You know, I'm going to go down the shops and I'm going to punch yeah. someone for a roll of toilet paper because I'm scared and I love my family and I don't know what to do. Yeah. All right. So we all have motivations like that. I love my family. I'll do anything for my family. And if that means punching a stranger for a roll of toilet paper, I will. I, th I, th I suppose what I would observe is that, I th that we do have a lot more in common than we imagine. When I was living in Yemen... I did a trip one weekend and took what I can't remember the name of one of the local airlines, but took a small flight towards Hadramouth, which is sort of in the in the middle of the country. And the pilot was American, which was sort of a bit unusual. And there was a stop on the way. It might have I think the plane may have flown to Aden and then up. And we got talking to the pilot during the stop because it was sort of, you know, so it was surprising to see a young Western pilot flying this plane in a domestic flight in Yemen. And he was from Montana and he explained that he was there because the pay was better for a young pilot in Yemen than it was in uh, working for an American domestic airline. And anyway, we exchanged contacts and he and his wife had those of us that were on that flight over for dinner and they were really lovely. They were devout Christians they were Fox News viewers and they were there with their young kids and it seemed a really surprising place for them to come and to be and I sort of inquired with them about that and how their own sort of personal backgrounds fit within, in a place like Yemen and, you know, they just kept talking over and over and over again about how this was a great place for a family and how there was a lot of respect for women and, uh, you know, culturally this sort of that's another debate about whether uh, women are respected in Yemen, but this was, their, this was their reflection on it and there was a lot of emphasis on family and that it was a relatively sort of simple, frugal, pious existence that sat really comfortably with them. And I think that's always sort of stayed with me. I, I remember being in Libya during the sort of revolution and then what turned into a war really in the lead up to Gaddafi being killed and riding along, 
in one of these sort of converted pickup trucks that had been turned into a, you know, weaponized vehicle and sitting in the back with some of these young fighters and they were, I think now you'd probably call them Islamist fighters, but they were sort of just, you know, young revolutionaries at that moment. And they obviously had these vehicles souped up with heavy weaponry, but they also had huge sound systems. And I, I remember looking in through the sort of window at the back of the cab and I was sitting on the back trailer with a few of the others and we were doing some filming with them. And I looked through and this, one of these young guys with the kind of kafir scarf around his neck was reading the Quran, so sort of reading the verses and they were all very religious, but then they were absolutely blasting Eminem out of the sound system. And they all looked very cool and kind of hipster, I guess. And I guess that's another observation I would make is that they're sort of more in common than we imagine. These guys sort of felt they were doing something brave and cool and, you know, could in their own minds very happily be reading the Quran and listening to Eminem, you know, smoking a cigarette at the same time. I do think that there is a lot more in common uh, across the borders than than what we probably would ever like to to think. They just want somewhere safe to sleep at night. They want their kids to do a little bit better than they do, and they want a couple of meals every day. Yeah, and they, you know, to be honest, they probably want to be cool. They want to do something that is meaningful. It, it was a really, it was a really formative experience for me in terms of understanding how and why all of these sort of young guys from all over the world were attracted to these, you know, crazy movements in the Middle East, you know, to go and sort of sign up and be part of something. But I think when you understand the kind of sense of dislocation, there's very kind of complex factors at play, but there was this, you know, something about the these awful videos and the messaging was appealing and connecting with them. I met a lot of the young guys in Britain that sort of went off to to Syria ultimately and, uh, you know, really sort of dislocated societally and then clearly saw something that they could connect with. I guess the, uh, the wanting to belong and wanting to feel like you have a place will take you to extreme spots if you don't have that at home really, won't it? With, with disastrous consequences. Yeah. But I, I don't know if that really answers your question about what connects all these pl- people in different places, but, but I do think there's a lot more that's similar than there is that's different. So you're saying you're on the back of this Hilux, I think they were. They were Toyota Hiluxes or yeah. something. So I remember one particular car manufacturer going, fuck where the car of choice of is of ISIS. Yeah. Mate, is it because we could put a 50 caliber machine gun welded on the back of the tonneau rack you know, really, really easily or something? And there's these, these brand new Hiluxes fanging around the Middle East, you know, hurting people. You're on the back of this truck. You're probably, you might have a fixer, but who can ever really be sure of how far the fix is going to go for you when they're, when they're up against the wall. So you're far away. You're isolated. Did you ever go, Jesus fucking Christ, I hope none of these guys have Instagram. I hope they don't kind of figure out that I myself in my heart, I'm a gay man on the back of their ute. I'm fucking holding this secret so hard inside my body. Did that ever come to... Not really. I mean, I... I often get asked about fear in those places for a whole range of reasons. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you don't ever feel scared, but I wouldn't say that it's sort of the dominating 
yeah. idea or feeling when you're in those sorts of scenarios. I'd say my experience of, of being in all of those places is that you – because if you're, if you're the correspondent, which is generally the role that I've had, you generally have a team with you and you're sort of ultimately the one that kind of has responsibility – not necessarily that you're the boss, but you, you, and depending on who the producer is, whether they're really senior or, or not, you, you, you tend to be the one that, that has to carry quite a bit of the responsibility. And other people are different, but I, I carry that, you know, pretty heavily. Or, you know, I take it very seriously, I suppose is a better way of putting it. So you become very, very focused on logistics. You become very focused on managing a team's morale within a moment, you become sort of almost obsessed with thinking ahead. You know, where are we going to end up here? What are we doing next? What time have we got to be? What's our, what's our deadline? When have we got to stop filming? When have we got to be editing? When have we got to be doing our live shot? All of that is in your head constantly. And yes, there are safety issues at play, but particularly if you're there with a Western network, you probably have a security guy as well. So you've sort of got to delegate some of that stuff to them. You just can't be kind of carrying it all in your own mind the whole time. And so I don't, I don't really think I spent a lot of time worrying about what about me. It's sort of not really, it's not how I'm built, I guess. And I think, you know, the reality of, yes, we have a perception of how some parts of the world might view questions of sexuality and all the rest of it, but the reality is that there are people of different sexualities all over the world, no matter what governments would say. And so it just never really cropped up for me in a, in, in a sense of fear. You know, I knew that I didn't really want to go and live in Qatar permanently, but, you know, I never felt worried being in Afghanistan, I never felt worried being in Yemen. I never lived in Malaysia for a while. It was not something that sort of overwhelmed me with fear. But you know, I, and I talked to my brother about this, particularly when he lived in other in other countries. He he would talk about the constant translation of oh, I can't hold my husband's hand. I can't, you know, the constant. I've got to be careful the way I discuss certain things in case it tells. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I didn't have anyone no. in my life, which no. probably made it um, sort of easier. But, yeah, I, in any case, I have always been a really private person. You know, we're all different and, and we all have our different reasons. But I'm just, I'm a pretty private individual. And I think we, you, you and I have some friends in common. I'm sure they would attest to that. I'm just a fairly kind of... I would say kind of generally a low-key operator. I don't like sort of waving my hands around saying, here I am. Um, You're the Daniel Day-Lewis of journalism. Is that – I don't, don't really even know what that means. He's never in public. He's oh, never really? in public. So when you see him, you're like, oh, it's Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, right. Okay. He yeah. never – he's a cobbler. He sits in the west of Ireland. Yeah, right. Making shrews. Yeah. That's literally what he does. Yeah. <laughs> I just – it would take me a while with anyone to sort of warm up to, to talk a lot about myself. Anyway. Hamish, I feel horrible inside my heart because I watched you sigh when I asked that question and now I want to cut the last 10 minutes of this chat away. Oh, that's fine. And don't worry. I'm, I'm... Did I cross a boundary? No, not at all. I, d I don't have any issue talking about those things. I just, 
I think, you know, we're whole people and there's lots of things about us and uh, I, I think, you know, my work is the main reason that I sort of am in the public space and really believe in being, in trying to be a really good journalist and being really down the line and not, you know, not being someone that is sort of trying to advance causes or my own views or things that are in my own interest. And I think that when you engage in, and, and I really respect that there are other people with different views of this, but I really believe in the work that I do. And I think that if I start to sort of put myself in front of all of that, then it makes it really hard to do. And I have a huge opportunity at the moment to do a program that I really, really believe in. And I've felt that about most of the opportunities that I've had along the way. And I think, I don't think I'm that interesting, I guess is probably the best way I can describe it. Um, I, I don't think there's anything about me that's sort of particularly like exciting or interesting to anyone. And I would hate to bore people. And, and you know, I really want the work to come first, I suppose, is, is the truth of it. Hamish, you're... Humility is extraordinary to witness. Really? Yeah. You just sat here for the last hour and 20 minutes telling me about I lived in that war zone and I did this and that and then you say, I'm not really that interesting, I'm not really that exciting. But what it shows to me is that it's all in service of the story. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. It's I remember ages ago I got told when I moved, first moved to Los Angeles, the guy said to me, my manager said to me, you've got to decide what side of the velvet rope you want to be on, all right? Because if you want to be on this side, you can't go back over. And once you become the story, then you can't be the person that tells the story. It was about we were going. I was going for a job at, at E, I think, or or TMZ or something. And it was a, do you really want to? Because once you do, you can't then go back on the other side. And um, that's like a, just a disposable entertainment news version of what you're saying. But you know, it shows that. You know, I consider you to be an extraordinarily interesting person. I oh. consider you to be uh, Thanks, a, a so very – no, you really are. You've, and anyone that's listened to this will go, holy shit, that guy's amazing, <laughs> you know. I mean, who fucking st- goes to study in Yemen, <laughs> you know, when you could go on, you know, I'm just going up to Fraser Island and hang out, you know. <laughs> you're like, no, I'm going to go study in Yemen. You know, you're an extraordinarily interesting person, but you, it's clear that you approach what you do with humility. You, you, to me, you see this opportunity in a history to be the person that allows these conversations that are so fucking vital to happen. And I couldn't be more grateful that it's you. I couldn't be more grateful that someone who's like, I don't want to put my thing in the way because it's not about me. It's about the story. It's about this issue. It's about that person asking a question of that politician sitting down there. It's not about me or my life or my choices or what color I am or whatever. It's not about that. And I'm never going to, and you see sometimes, I mean, I would use the example of, um, an example of this would be Rachel Maddow in the States. She, as far as I'm concerned, is incredibly good at what she does and yet puts so much of herself into it that it's so easy to dismiss. Like she may bring incredibly, really clever points to air, but because she said it and because she puts herself in inside the, the narrative so much, people just go, ah, fuck it, don't want to care about all of it. And it's a real shame. Look, we, we, we obviously live in a world where there's this kind of blending of news and opinion and there's a place for that and I have a lot of respect for people 
that do some of those jobs, you know, some of them do it brilliantly and, you know, very, very impressive. But I think there is also space for people that really believe in just being the journalist and being the person that plays a straight bat. And it might be really difficult to be interviewed by them or it might be really robust. You know that if you go on their show, they're going to ask you difficult things and hold you to account, but you know that they'll do it to both major political parties or to all the political parties that come on and they'll do it even-handedly and they won't do it because they're trying to promote or advance a particular set of ideas. I think there there is space for that. I think there are, much to probably some people's dismay, there are quite a lot of journalists that really do believe in that. Um, it's certainly the way I go about this. I want to be able to look politicians in the eye when I invite them on and say, look, I will ask you some difficult questions and there will be some robust exchanges, but you'll get a fair go. And you know that by turning up to my program, you'll be able to talk directly to the public and they will probably have some difficult questions, but you will probably get some credit for at least turning up and being brave enough to do so. The Chinese embassy is willing to turn up. Uh, You can too. Oh, mate, I'm so grateful you're in this world. Oh, thanks. I really am. Because, <laughs> you know, I name the, I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and part of the um, therapy that I use to help manage it is I, I, I name the obsessive thought patterns and um, one of them's uh, the toilet terrors. Oh, yeah. Every time I get up to go to the pee in the middle of the night, my prefrontal cortex is, is not there, so there's no rationalisation. So my brain's just going straight to fear and panic, and you know the world's ending, the temperatures warming, da 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 da. And I'm like, oh, hey, toilet terrors, how are you going? I'm just going to pee now in the dark, and then try and find my way back to the bed and not wake up the baby. You know, yeah, right. so <laughs> I'm grateful that in this world you exist, right. because then I get to go. It's okay. We have someone like Hamish to have these conversations, and in this time in our history, I'm just so again. I'm just so grateful it's you, man. Thank you, mate. <laughs> I feel like I've really rambled. Anyway. No, this is a conversation. Yeah. And now, but that obsessive part of my brain's really worried that I crossed the line with you. No, no, don't. Hey, don't worry. Are you sure? Yeah, of course. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. How good's that? That's Hamish McDonald. How good is he? He's great. He's on Q&A on the ABC. If you're listening to this a day it came out, it's Monday. It's tonight. If you're listening to it in five years, it's probably still on somewhere. He's probably still hosting it. It's called Q&A. And um, you can also find him on Twitter and Instagram. Hamish News is where he is. Thanks to everyone that helped me make this show today. Thanks, Andy Marr, my audio producer, who did a, a stellar job in um, cleaning up a few bugs with the new studio today. Uh, Rachel Barrett, who made everything awesome. She did a lot of work at the back end. A lot of metadata troubles this week, but Rachel was all over it. Haley, who looked after all the socials this week, and of course my manager Lauren. Thanks to you, Audrey, who's downstairs painting, but she's just great. And um, you, thank you for listening, because without you, there's nothing. I can't believe Wolfie, you stayed asleep. Oh, that was a big sigh. You gonna wake up, honey? Man, you're gonna have to wake up soon because you're gonna have dinner. So we can get you back to sleep. Otherwise, we're gonna be here till midnight again. Yeah, we're going through that at the moment. All right, so look after yourself this week. 
Look after yourself. Look after your neighbors. Have some empathy for other people who may not be in your situation. If you see someone panicking, know that panic is just fear. Notice that that person is actually acting out of fear. They're probably very scared. Try to have some empathy and some space for them to be in fear and be in, let the fear play out. Try not to get involved with it, but just understand that that's, that's people who are scared. That's probably going to happen. This is some scary shit, but we're all here together and we're going to be okay. Just do the right thing. Do the right thing and trust that other people in the community will do the right thing. Mm-hmm. That's right, Wolfie. Don't go out if you're ill. <laughs> it's going to be all right. We all have our part to play here. And I think we as a community will be incredibly strong because of what we do in this bit. I think we're going to find new resilience like we've not found before. The power's still on, the toilet's still flush, the food still grows. We have internet. We're going to be all right. All right. I'm off to try and figure out how to get house paint out of leg hair. Try and wake up a baby. Until we speak on Friday, the world will probably change quite a bit between now and then. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 